This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Dr. John Compton. John is an Associate Professor and is also serving as Chair of the Department of Political Science at Chapman University in California. We're talking to John today about his his new book, The End of Empathy, Why White Protestants Stopped Loving Their Neighbours, which will be published by Oxford University Press in 2020. John, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Before we talk about the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to um, the academic position that you have today and also how you came to write about the book? Sure. My uh, my background is in political science. I uh, did my PhD at UCLA, um, where I studied with Karen Oren, who uh, studies American political development, or which is really the subfield of political science that that looks at American political history and tries to identify the broader uh, trends that have shaped uh, political history in the U.S. And so my my dissertation, which turned into my first book, was about uh, the evangelical reform movements of the 19th century and early 20th century and how those shaped American constitutional law, um, particularly how they had the effect. And I'm mainly talking here about prohibition and anti-lottery movements and things like that, and how they had the effect of weakening property rights and weakening the federalist the, the federal system as it had existed in the 19th century um, and, and leading ultimately leading up to the constitutional changes of the New Deal period so uh, um, that really got me into the study of religion and politics and 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 I came to believe that religion was probably an underrated uh, source or uh, you know causal factor in American political history and uh, this new book kind of picks up chronologically where the first book ended although the uh, the focus is no longer on constitutional law, but on on politics more broadly. Um, so, uh, so I guess that's sort of my, my background. I've just always been uh, fascinated by the role that religion has played in shaping American political development, and uh, uh, particularly up through the 1960s and 70s. And then we can get into this later. But my my argument is that religion is probably overrated today as an influence in our politics, um, whereas prior to the 60s or and 70s, it was it was actually very important. Ah, now that, that that's quite a provocative argument, isn't it? Uh, and you've built that provocation, that sense of provocation into the title of the book itself, The End of Empathy, Why White Protestants Stop Loving Their Neighbours. Um, why did you choose this title? 
Right. Well, it actually originally had a different subtitle, which was The Rise and Decline of White Protestant Social Concern, which I realize is kind of a mouthful. And, and um, various people, including my editor at Oxford, pointed out that, you know, a little pithier title would probably sell more books. Um, so this is what we went with. Uh, but as I point out in the conclusion, I, I realized that this title is, you know, in some ways very unfair to modern day white Protestants. I mean, clearly, um, you have a lot of, uh, you know, present day churchgoers who are, who are very empathetic, who are very active in a variety of causes that are designed to, to make the world better, to help marginalized citizens, et cetera. Um, and we can, again, we can tease out the full argument later, but, but basically my argument is not that, that individual evangelicals or white Protestants don't care about their neighbors or don't, don't care about, you know, marginalized citizens. It's, it's that as a social force, religion has really stopped um, changing minds or mobilizing or motivating political action in the way that it did 40 or 50 years ago, say at the time of the, that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, for example. Um, today, there are still a lot of religious people, and on an individual level, many of them may be quite empathetic, uh, but we no longer it's no longer really the case that religious leaders can take an issue like, you know, say, climate change or immigration reform and mobilize large numbers of constituents uh, to change their minds on that issue and to and to to press lawmakers for change in the way that they could have, say, 40 or 50 years ago. Now, the book sets out, as you've just indicated, to challenge the ways in which we've thought about the relationship between religion and politics, uh, especially evangelical religion or white Protestant religion, use the terms more or less synonymously in the book. But you, you set out really to challenge the way we've thought about the relationship between evangelical religion and politics, especially in the 20th century, uh, especially in the States. How, how have we thought about this issue, this relationship, and how do you want us to think about it now? Right, I, I think, uh, you know, in the general population, there's a lot of confusion about these terms, you know, who's an evangelical, who's a white Protestant, who's a mainline Protestant. And I wanted to, to be as clear as possible, and I'm sure I wasn't always successful, but I wanted to be as clear as possible on how I use these terms. And so the larger historical argument of the book is that, you know, the the evangelical, the main distinction in this country has always been between evangelical Protestants and mainline Protestants. Um, I say it's that's always been the distinction. That's at least since the 1920s, roughly, that's been the distinction. And um, so prior to about the 1970s, you know, the mainline Protestants, the dominations like uh, the Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Congregationalists were really the dominant force. Um, evangelicals were there, you know, they were a large presence in the South, but they were kind of on the margins of American Protestant society. And it's in the 1960s and 70s when the mainline denominations collapse that the evangelicals really come to the fore. And so I think we have to be very uh, clear and precise about that timeline in order to understand um, uh, American political history and the role that religion has played in, in it. Now, the, the main point I make with respect to evangelicals and politics is that there seems to be a common misperception that you know, sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, evangelicals really marched into the political realm uh, under the leadership of 
these celebrity you know televangelists like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, people like this, um, and that even today evangelicals are sort of this you know faceless mass that that they basically follow very charismatic leaders who tell them who to vote for, tell them what issues to care about. Um, when in fact, I think what really distinguishes the evangelical tradition in this country, in contrast to the mainline Protestant tradition, is that evangelicals really don't follow leaders. It's a very leaderless tradition. There, there's not a lot of authority within the tradition. Um, churches, congregations are very independent. They have very little authority over their members. Um, pastors have very little authority over their congregations. Um, so in the evangelical tradition, it's always been the case that the leaders are kind of playing catch up. Uh, they're, they're trying to figure out what the people uh, in, in the pews believe politically and the political positions they stake out tend to mirror their congregants rather than the other way around. Um, obviously, I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but I think, um, you know, if you look at the evangelical tradition since the, since the 1980s, what you'll see is that whenever evangelical leaders stake out positions left of center in this country, uh, they typically get pushed to the margins of the movement. Um, and if you want to be at the forefront of the movement, you have to sort of stake out right of center positions because that's the, been the general drift of evangelical churchgoers since the eighties. Um, it's not that leaders have pulled them to the right. It's that um, basically non-college whites as a demographic group and evangelicals are heavily, um, they tend to be non-college whites overwhelmingly. Uh, they have drifted to the right as a group and their leaders have mostly followed suit. Now we might we might come back to that later on, John, and begin to unpack some of those themes because what you've sketched out is a huge and really elaborate argument, very important argument. One will have to really reckon with. How do you how do you develop the argument in stages through the book? It's arranged in three parts, isn't it? Right. Yeah. This, so the, the the book is arranged in three parts. Part one uh, is called the Age of Stewardship, and what I argue is that you know beginning around the turn of the 20th century when the mainline Protestant denominations were still, were still dominant in this country um, around the same time, all of them took an issue, took an interest in social reform issues like child labor, um, prohibition, uh, getting workplace regulations for women. Um, they all endorsed these social causes around the turn of the 20th century. And they built a very elaborate set of institutions to help, uh, educate congregations, help mobilize congregations to to lobby on behalf of progressive economic and other reforms, and they were really quite successful with that up in, up until about the period of the New Deal. Um, and part two of the book is called uh, "Why the Center Held," and that covers the the period from the New Deal through the mid nineteen sixties. And what I argue in that period is that the mainline churches were still, uh, they were still powerful. They still had um, a very effective institutional structure based on a, uh, a set of uh, state and local church councils that existed in some 600 communities across the country. Um, they were still very successful at mobilizing their, their congregations for political action when they chose to do that. Uh, but during this period, they were also often finding themselves embroiled in controversy uh, because um, you had a kind of burgeoning right wing in this country that was very concerned about communism and very suspicious of any organization that was lobbying for 
you know, progressive economic reforms or civil rights reforms. And so it was a very controversial period where the, the mainline churches found themselves constantly pushing back against these allegations from the right. But on the whole, they, they remain quite powerful, hence the title, uh, Why the Sitter Held. Um, they mostly succeeded in pushing back these, uh, these attacks. And in fact, they had some really significant policy victories, uh, the most notable being the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, obviously, the, you know, the churches, the white churches didn't launch the civil rights movement. They were, they were late to the, to the party in a sense. Uh, but once they got on board, they were hugely influential in pushing the, the Civil Rights Act through Congress and, and later the Voting Rights Act. Um, and so in that section, I, I document the role that the, the churches played and, and the various mechanisms they used to pressure lawmakers and, and to mobilize their, their congregants on these issues. Um, and then the last section is called From Revela Revelation to Rationalization. And this deals with the period from the late 1960s through the, through the present. And I argue that the way we have to think about this period is it's a period when religious authority has basically collapsed. Um, the authority that the mainline churches once enjoyed over their members is gone. And since the late 60s, the mainline churches have been losing members and funding at an alarming rate to the point that they're you know, a relatively minor uh, presence in the American political landscape right now. And it's the evangelical churches that are now much more, much larger, better funded, more powerful, et cetera. Um, but again, the reason I, I call this from revelation to rationalization, it's even as the evangelical churches have come to the fore and have become more powerful, I argue that they're not really driving, uh, religious leaders are not really driving the agenda. What's happened is that the demographic group that fills the evangelical churches has moved to the right politically. And again, the leaders have mostly played catch up and mirrored the, the political convictions of their, of their members. Um, and, and so in this last section, I, you know, I, I really try to, to draw out the stories of some evangelicals who tried to resist that the rightward drift of the non-college white electorate and found themselves marginalized as a result. Um, people like the, the theologian, Carl Henry, uh, who was, his, who was himself fairly conservative, but on certain issues like civil rights and the environment, he, you know, he, he recognized that the conservative movement, in his view, was not advocating for biblical principles. Um, he tried to push back against, uh, you know, people like Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and ultimately found himself marginalized. And then there were several, uh, very prominent politicians in this country in the seventies and eighties who were, who were very devout evangelicals, but who were in the middle or on the left politically. Um, well, Jimmy Carter would be an example, but uh, also people like Mark Hatfield, who was a, a well-known senator from Oregon, or John B. Anderson, a congressman from Illinois who ran for president in 1980. Uh, these, these evangelicals really tried to resist that uh, rightward drift of the electorate and really found themselves ultimately kicked out of the movement or, or, or marginalized. Um, so that's what I think distinguishes this modern period. It's a period where religious authority is very weak and we still have a lot of religious Americans, um, but it's not clear that religion is what's driving our politics in the same way that it sometimes did prior to the 1960s. Mm. Now, wh when you frame the first part of the book, you, you begin by having us think about fundamentalism and the social gospel. What, what are these things? How do they interact with one another or even co-form each other? 
and where where, uh, where do they contribute to the to the development of uh, an evangelical politics through this period? Right. I try to, even though the the focus is more on the the more liberal mainline denominations in the first part of the book, I try to also uh, keep pace with with what's happening among the more conservative branch of American polit- uh, American religion. And so, I mean, you do, you know, I'm sure you know the, this history quite well, but uh, we do see the the birth of, you know, the modern fundamentalist movement in the 19 teens, roughly. And, you know, what I try to point out in the book is that the fundamentalists really remained on the margins um, for, you know, for the first half of the 20th century. And, you know, the traditional, to get back to your original question, I think you, you were asking how fundamentalism feeds into the modern evangelical movement. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, I mean, the, the traditional distinction is that, uh, Fundamentalists in the 19 teens who were very concerned about biblical literalism, very concerned about pushing back against um, Darwinian evolution, um, very concerned about the use of, of you know, methods from uh, from the humanities, the academic humanities being employed in, in the, the seminaries and things like that. Um, you know, that was to some extent a Southern phenomenon, but also, you know, you had some some folks in the North as well. And you had these fights within the denominations that where they, people ultimately split off or threatened to leave. Um, but it's really not until we get to the 1950s that the term evangelical becomes popular in this country. Um, the folks in the teens and the twenties tended to call themselves fundamentalists. Sometimes they would use the term evangelical, but it's really in the, in the forties and fifties when the national association of evangelicals is founded. And when Billy Graham really takes off and, Graham calls his organization uh, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, I believe was the title. Um, so it's with, really with the founding of the NAE and Graham's various ministries in the 40s and 50s that, that evangelicalism takes off. And the, and the distinction there, I think, is that um, the evangelicals in the 40s and 50s was, was no longer just a Southern phenomenon. Graham was, you know, based in various places, but and originally hailed from the South, but was not associated with the South in the same way as, say, Bob Jones or someone like that. Um, and the NAE, the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, was largely made up of Northern congregations. Um, so I think that's when the term comes into widespread usage. But the point I make in the book is that even though evangelicals are out there, even though folks like Graham are very hugely popular, um, as an institutional force, they're really quite weak uh, through the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, the NAE is founded as an attempt to be kind of a counterweight to the National Council of Churches, which is the, the body that represents the mainline Protestant denominations. But it never really takes off. You know, it has something like uh, 600, 700,000 members through the, through the 50s, whereas the National Council of Churches can claim to represent 30 million members. Um, and you know, clearly not everyone, not every church that was affiliated with the National Council of Churches necessarily endorsed its entire agenda, but it was a much larger, much more powerful organization. Its pronouncements were reprinted in the New York Times, Washington Post, major papers, etc. Um, whereas the NAE really was was kind of on the margins through the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So um, 
but that's that's what I try to do in the book is to trace the back and forth between these these two halves of American Protestantism and explain how how it was that the mainline Protestants were able to maintain their dominance for so long and then and then the effects of of their collapse on on um, facilitating the rise of the evangelicals. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You mentioned earlier on, John, uh, Carl Henry, famous evangelical theologian, um, Mark Hatfield, um, the Republican uh, senator, wasn't he, from from from, from Oregon. Um, right. You also talk about Francis Schaeffer in the book as, as another example of someone who tries to, uh, an evangelical theologian in this particular case, who tries to position himself uh, in a certain way on certain kinds of issues, for example, the environment, and then has to move... Uh, or has has to follow the, the the community he wants to address. I suppose uh, we might say, well, how do we understand this drift to the right? There's some really interesting passages in your book about demographic change within churches, which affect everyone or or, or all kinds of churches, uh, an, an aging church attending population, and a, a really dramatic moment of average age shift. Um, I think in the very late fifties through the middle part of the sixties, I think you, you you explain. Sure. Yeah. I uh, the the collapse. Well, I'll, I'll circle back to your question about uh, Francis Schaeffer and, and Carl Henry, uh, but the demographic problem um, really hits the mainline Protestant churches very hard in the mid to late nineteen sixties. Uh, prior to that time, uh, the the kind of demographic backbone of the mainline Protestant churches was uh, up and coming, socially mobile young people. Um, if you were university educated, if you wanted to, you know, set yourself up for a successful career in, in business or whatever, uh, it really behooved you to seek out membership in, in a prominent mainline Protestant congregation. Um, Max Weber recognized this when he visited the U.S., uh, in 1904, and so I, I build on his work to, to lay out this argument, but um, academic sociologists in this country all the way up through the 50s and 60s repeatedly documented this, that it was upwardly mobile um, young people who were driving the growth of the mainline Protestant, the more liberal mainline Protestant churches. Um, and then around the mid-60s, when the baby boom generation reaches adulthood, uh, young people just stop going to church. Um, there's a huge generational fall off in church attendance in the mid sixties. And this just kills the mainline Protestant churches because all of a sudden, not only do you not have young people, but you have a very rapidly aging church population at the same time that this country is being hit with a variety of uh, forms of social upheaval from Vietnam war and the anti-war protests to um, the black power movement to the, the women's rights movement. So you've got an aging church population. You've got church leaders who are trying to stake out pretty liberal or progressive positions on things like the war and the civil rights movement. And But the young people who might be expected to sympathize with those positions are no longer in the pews. The old people who are in the pews are very conservative. And so it's kind of a perfect storm that really um, leads to the 
almost the collapse of the mainline Protestant infrastructure. Now, uh, what's going on with the evangelicals at this time, everyone all of a sudden starts to notice, well, you know, not only are the evangelical churches doing fine, some of them are, are actually growing. Um, the Southern Baptists are growing rapidly through the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, the Missouri Synod Lutherans, um, you have a whole host of conservative denominations and, you know, these independent, usually typically theologically conservative megachurches are, are beginning to sprout up and grow as well. And so, you know, at one time it was thought that people were leaving the mainline Protestant churches going to the evangelical churches. I think most sociologists and political scientists today say that's probably not the case. It was just that the evangelical churches did a better job of retaining their members. Um, they may have had slightly higher birth rates. There's a debate about this. Um, but for whatever reason, evangelical churches continue to thrive. Um, but to get back to the the thrust of my argument, uh, there was this sort of qualitative difference between the mainline churches and the evangelical churches in that the mainline churches really did have some degree of top-down authority to where they could kind of set an agenda prior to the mid-60s and, and have some success uh, mobilizing their members on behalf of that agenda. What happens on the evangelical side is that evangelical leaders pretty quickly find out in the late 70s, early 80s, that they don't really have the power to shape their members' political convictions or their followers' political convictions. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the last section talking about this really interesting period in the 70s where you do have all of these kind of centrist to even left-leaning evangelicals, people like Hatfield, uh, John B. Anderson, um, and, and um, writers like Francis Schaeffer. And in the early 70s, a lot of these people um, were in agreement with a lot of the goals of the political left. Um, Francis Schaeffer writes an entire book on the environmental movement, um, urging you know, rapid action to combat the uh, you know, threats to the environment. Christianity Today, you know, very, you know, sort of the flagship periodical of evangelicalism devotes an entire issue to the environment, um, calling for, you know, quick government action, saying that, that, that protecting the environment is mandated, is, you know, mandated by biblical principles. And so in the, in the early to mid-70s, it's not exactly clear that the rise of evangelicalism is going to be a, a boon for political conservatism. Right? It's not exactly clear that there's a connection. Um, but that begins to change once it becomes clear that that white voters as a group, and particularly non-college white voters, are shifting rightward. So, you know, I have a fair amount of graphs in the book tracking public opinion on issues like civil rights, um, tracking party identification. And what you see across the 70s, early 80s, into the 90s is that white voters and not particularly non-college white voters track rightward on all of these issues pretty much regardless of religious tradition. Um, it's not just evangelicals that are tracking rightward. Um, it's also non-believers who are tracking rightward. It's Catholics, um, to some extent, even mainline Protestants. Uh, so what we see again is this sort of uh, entire demographic group shifting. And so people like Francis Schaeffer have to decide, am I going to, am I going to stick with the left-leaning positions that I staked out in the early seventies, or am I going to come around to, um, where my, where my readers are at, at this moment in history. And in Fran and Schaefer's case, the shift is, is pretty dramatic. Um, you know, in the late eighties, he, or I'm sorry, in the late seventies, he becomes well known for, 
a couple of books on uh, and a movie on on uh, the rise of legalized abortion and into the early 80s he becomes you know a full-fledged uh a full-fledged member of the conservative movement basically endorses the full panoply of conservative uh political causes from cutting taxes to increasing military spending to everything else um so i think he's an example of someone who really moved with his readership in order to in order to keep an audience um and obviously that's a pretty uncharitable way of, of framing his career. I realized there were some issues he was consistent on, but it really is striking um, how far to the right he moved toward the end of his career. Um, one other quick example, I talk about Harold Lenzel, who was the, the editor of Christianity Today um, in the early 70s, adopted a lot of positions very similar to Schaefer, um, pro-environmental regulation, for example. Um, and in some, in, in some of his early 70s writings sounds almost sort of uh, well, it really sounds quite critical of capitalism. Um, he blames overconsumption for our environmental uh, environmental problems. Uh, you know, says that we've become too materialistic as a society, and that we need to to scale down our our consumption, etc. Um, then, in the early '80s, as as his readership shifts, Lenzel becomes basically a you know free market libertarian type thinker. Writes a couple of books that are that are just free market orthodoxy, the more consumption, the better. Um, and just, you know, perfectly, you know, time to perfectly coincide with the Reagan revolution. So I think you see this general drift from sort of the center left to the, to the fairly far right among a lot of evangelical commentators um, between the mid seventies and the, and the mid eighties. Well, as, as anyone listening will know by now, this is a, a, a very important book that makes some very formidable arguments. But one of the questions that your book left me with, John, at the end as it came through the conclusion was the question of whether religion still matters as a way of explaining political developments. You, you begin the book actually with the famous statistic of 81% of white evangelical voters supporting Trump. But as we come to the end of the book and as we think again about that statistic, it, it might raise a question in our minds, does that statistic actually tell us anything about Trump or evangelicals? How how would you answer that? I know this this may sound like a strange thing to say, uh, given that I just wrote a, a long book about the influence of religion on politics. But but I, I tend to think that that statistic is is vastly uh, overrated. That it maybe really doesn't tell us that much about the role of religion in present day politics. Um, so you know, again, my thesis is that although there are a lot of religious people in this country, it's not clear that religion really motivates political behavior in the same way that it did 40 or 50 years ago. So, you know, to put that in more concrete terms, you know, the 81% of evangelicals who voted for Trump, I mean, these folks, again, tend to be, well, that, that's the white evangelical figure, I believe. Um, so they tend to be white. Uh, they tend to be registered Republicans. Um, they tend to be, they're more likely to be non-college educated than than um, other white voters. So even if all we knew about these voters was other demographic characteristics aside from uh, their religious activity, we would still, you know, strongly predict that they would be Trump voters. Um, so I, I have a couple charts in the book where I track evangelical opinion on different issues over the past 40, 50 years with 
non-college white opinion on the same issues. And what you see is the lines track each other almost almost perfectly. Um, it's it's just not the, clear to me that religion is what's driving a lot of evangelical political behavior today. Uh, now, of course, I should offer a couple of caveats. Obviously, you know, things are a little different at the elite level. I mean, I, I'm sure that, that uh, you know, the prominent evangelical leaders who, who care a lot about issues like abortion um, and other, other social issues, I don't doubt their sincerity. I don't doubt that there are activists who, who you know, pockets of, of activists who belong to organizations who also care deeply about these issues. Um, but, you know, could we imagine a world where prominent evangelical leaders come out for immigration reform or something like that, or, or combating climate change. And as a result of that, we see, you know, millions of evangelicals change their views and get on board with actual, with, with more progressive positions on these issues. I mean, I can't imagine that happening. It's, it's, uh, the institutions aren't there. The authority structure isn't there. And so, so I, at the end of the day, I do tend to think that religion is vastly, um, overestimated or its impact on, on present day politics tends to be vastly exaggerated. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on to the show today and sharing your time with us. Um, this is an important book and it's one I hope a lot of people will read and, and will respond to. Um, thank you for, for writing it and thanks for, for sharing uh, your, your, your summary of it just now. Thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.